everybody. Welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. We appreciate y'all supporting this pod and the people that support the pod so much. Uh, please do. We, we try to select the people that we work with very carefully. Also, don't forget to check out After Dark and check out the streaming shows Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 3 o'clock at drdrew.tv. Today, my guest is Jason Kakianis. He can be followed at jasonkakianis.com. Is that correct? As well as ferment.co. Am I getting that correct, Jason? 100% correct. Thank All you. Right. And then Twitter, which I don't know how active you're on, is J underscore Kakianis. And you're going to have to spell that Greek last name out. It's K-A-K-O-Y-A-N-N-I-S. Can I respell it for you? It's K-A-K-O-Y-I-A-N-N-I-S. Sorry, O-Y-I-A. So there's an I after the Y? Correct. Yeah. So it's like you want to learn a little basic Greek to augment your. I do. I do, and I, I, I'll personal. talk about why in a second. But that must have haunted you your entire life or, with yeah, teachers yeah. and stuff. Oh I, I usually just say it's silent till you hit the S. So it's really funny. It 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 is. I I so I learned a little basic Greek. I actually was pretty good. I developed long COVID. Okay, back two years ago, Gosh. and. And I and a brain fog and fatigue were these prominent symptoms for a few months, and I had this weird sense that if I worked on language, or like music or dance, it was the strangest feeling. I thought one of those things I think would help me, mm. and we were going to go to Greece that summer, so I thought I'm going to learn Greek, and uh, I did it. I did it sort of, um, you know as a parlor trick you know you can learn you can go from zero to to kind of conversant there's like a very steep curve associated yeah, it's with like that. Tennis. you can yeah. kind of get there you can get social but it's really hard to advance well and you can you can say and i limited everything to i and we because i figured i'm they i'm not going to need and i just everything was i and we and so so here's here's what i learned i learned how to say like saithala in a cafe i can say i would like a coffee please yeah. And and I learned prospatho and protimo and words like that 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 uh, I could respond with if people said well, at least you're trying yeah prospatho yeah that is like battle Greek that's survival Greek yeah you it was survival Greek but will die in country I you won't ever be able to express the eloquent poetry that resides in your soul but you I, will be able to get something done in a restaurant. It, right. Uh, and, and and the Greek really appreciate it. it was a parlor trick. Let's be fair. And the Greek people really appreciate it. They're like, in fact, so much so I thought, God, maybe the COVID screwed my brain up. And I was one of these people that can now all of a sudden learn languages. You know yeah. what I mean? Like somebody wakes so, up after a coma can speak Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> maybe there's something you unlocked. Too. You unlocked. But so can I ask you, did you did you actually learn the alphabet or did no. you just go off of no. phonetic? Correct. Kind of phonetic. 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 I did kind of learn the alphabet, and I could kind of see some of the words, but but no, I did not make it a system. It, what, it, like what I said, was your adopted like, Greek name? What's that? What was your adopted Greek name? Oh, I didn't have that. I didn't. I didn't go that way. Yeah, I, I was just trying to, you know, ask for coffee and, and directions. That <laughs> was sort of what I was going for. And I could say, "Come here and go there." And I and and there was, but I really, but I was surprised how much I learned. I, I how much now I'm surprised how much I forgot, but. But it was uh, fun, and it cleared my long COVID. It cleared it. And so much so, I thought, you know, I'm going to keep going with languages. And I got back to French, which is something I studied for many years, and was never able to speak in a conversant. I could never be conversant, really, in French. So mm-hmm. I thought, F this. I'm going to get that. It's taken a while. It's French. French. The way they speak French is a whole different deal. But you were going to tell me something about basic Greek. 
I was just going to tell, I was going to, I was complimenting your, your basic, your battle Greek, your survival skill Greek. And, and, uh, I, I was also taught Allah Axisi, which is when I would, when I would learn some Greek, the shop owners would go, yeah, but it's worth it. Allah Axisi. But, yeah. You never regret the things you buy in Greece. Only the things, <laughs> you buy. It's a, but it's, it's worth a, it. Unique property of shopping in that country. So Jason and I met at a uh, fundraiser sort of thing for the Prostate Cancer Foundation, something set up by Michael Milken some 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, when he was told he was going to die. And he said, there's got to be some solutions and got to work at funding research and now is one of the leading research organizations for really cutting young researchers loose, having just sort of no really just a good idea. We fund it and they've million breakthroughs that they have funded. And it's been a great thing, but I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. But I met Jason with these events and two things struck me that I wanted to get into today. If you don't mind, I, I feel like your story might be interesting and inspirational for young people who are trying to figure out what they want to do. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I kind of want to walk through that with you. And then we'll talk about ferment and all the science and what what's up there and some pretty exciting stuff you're working on. Okay, sounds great. All right, so you started in art history, where every great scientist starts. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm certainly one of the least technically qualified people to be working in the synthetic biology space, but that is a hundred percent true. I started in art history. I was uh, an undergrad studying liberal arts wanted i was a writer wanted to write about stuff so fell into the world of kind of art criticism and then upon graduation or getting near to graduation made the classic mistake of asking my college professors what i should think about career-wise and inevitably the advice was go get a phd right so boom upon graduation found myself in a phd program for Uh, art for art art history what what specifically were you studying that's a pretty broad topic post post 50s Modern art, so post fifties contemporary art and eighteenth century French painting. Ooh, right? you can't actually write a thesis in at the time in in post fifties contemporary art, right? All you'd be citing to would be art forum articles, right? Huh. Not properly academic and rigorous enough. So you had to pick sort of another discipline to write about. For me, that was eighteenth century French painting. Eighteenth um, century sort of um, Meissonier, or where the Judgment of Paris switched over to Manet. Right. Well, no. Pr- yeah. Prior, prior to Manet. So like David Gruz, um, the uh, classics. You know, early empire, that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, Giro, Jer- Jericho, was that his name? Jer- Jericho a little, yeah. little later, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. And, uh, so that's so interesting. Did you have to, that's all in the Louvre, right? I mean, pretty much everything's there. Uh, that is in the Louvre. There are there are a couple pocket collections around the U.S., U.K., and Germany. But you're right. And then then in the later 19th century French painting, you know, a, a lot of it is in America, right? Because it's being collected right. by Americans, not yeah. the proper, you know, academic. Uh, it wasn't the you know impressionism, post impression that stuff wasn't the proper academic French art, and so it wasn't being collected as as heavily. And do you, did you get into that shift? It kind of fascinates me that the book, The Judgment of Paris, I found very interesting. Uh, I think that's what it's called, Judgment of, is it called Judgment of Paris? It was about, about the sort of the apogee in, in Messonnier's, uh Napoleon, wherever he was and what battlefield. And okay. that all went, there was just a full record scratch right after that, that things changed very quickly. Was that, is that an accurate, do you think, rendition of what happened, that book? 
I have to be honest. I'm not familiar with the book. Do you know who wrote I'm it? I'm sure I'm getting it right. It was, it was about the, the, what did they call themselves? The Academy, the art Academy. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and how they had to have a separate exposition, a, a literally a separate pavilion for the, for Manet and his colleagues. Yeah. So they had, they had like a salon de refuse at one, yeah. which was like, so these guys were not the academically trained, groomed, pedigreed artists. They weren't interested in painting, uh, I guess, sort of like either historical events or, or doing things that were sort of like politically charged kind of symbol making. These guys were interested in, you know, painting uh, visuality, working more on perception, also sort of social, social you know, street scenes, et cetera. And all of this was, wasn't really uh, properly academic territory or terrain and so there was a there was sort of a split. And the Salon de Refusé was where they showed a lot of the early impressionist, post impressionist painters. And it was all scandalous, scandalous. Yeah, yeah. breaking the tradition exactly. Déjeuner sur sur l'herbe. You know, it's, it was a what these yeah, people out there. So this book is I'm looking at it now. It's by Ross King. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you the reference. And uh, you know what's interesting? Back to language. I I discovered that. The French have a language police also. Uh, it was actually established by Richelieu himself. Uh, and they have a Académie Française, which is just the language police, quite literally. And yeah. I feel like one of the reasons I'm not able to speak conversational French is there's massive a sort of uh, antisocial instinct in the language pushing back against the Academy. So literally to the point where they speak Pig Latin. They say they inverse their words just because they think it's funny. Like, right. like, flip or, like, like the way we do pig Latin. Or because it's like punk. It's punk. Exactly. Except I, it's, except it's everybody does it. All right. So there we are. You're stuck. Yeah. You, That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so we get to the point where you're now thinking about or getting a PhD. Are you actually going down the road? So to, yeah. So I'm on my way to get a PhD realize at a certain point, this is a one-way ticket ac- into academia, took a look around. Is this what I want to be doing for the next, you know, 35, 40 years of my life? You're how old now? I'm 24. So your undergraduate at Brown, the PhD was at Yale. Did you actually get the PhD? No, I bailed ABD, right? I took, I took my language courses. I filed the prospectus for what was going to be my PhD thesis. And then uh, I took a sabbatical year. And I got a fellowship at the Whitney Museum hmm. in New York, independent study program, kind of curatorial fellow, was doing some curating there and was sort of just banging around the New York City art world, you know, bail, like on my way out of academia, looking for the next thing. And I started getting involved, believe it or not, in sensory stuff. So fragrance and flavor. And the reason for this was I was always intrigued by... um First of all, the, the the experience of taste and smell is just potent, emotional. I was always kind of drawn to these things. I couldn't really express myself or really parse those experiences. And then it started to dawn on me because that's because there's no real vocabulary for it. Um, and then I liked it even more because coming out of academic art history, one of the beefs, and this was also, this was sort of like early 2000s, I would say like past the height of postmodernism, but there's just a lot of critical theory running through 
all of the all of the, all the discourses, right? And so the critical voices were really loud relative to the work. And, and when was this, would you say? This was 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. And what I really wanted, go ahead. I I just want this to be sort of aspirational for young people because a lot of people kick around and can't figure out what they want to do. And and I want to know what, like what you were feeling at the time. What were you, you know, were you you depressed? Here's what was going on. I was, I think like I ended up in grad school because I was continuing to do what I did well in undergrad, which was pursue grades, write papers, and yeah. sort of follow this excessively tracked um, path. Yeah. Right? And that's what I, I, that's what I think. Most what was your family of origin like? What, what were they? Greek Americans. My parents grew up in Brooklyn, both kids of immigrant families, met through the Greek church when they were 16. You know, they were like a really West Side story sort of romance. As soon as they could rub two nickels together, move to the suburbs. My mom who was extremely smart, talented, and gifted and had a scholarship to the Sorbonne of all places and was not permitted to go because of, you know, her father's conservatism, uh, dropped out of school to put my dad through law school. Uh, and my dad's still an attorney living in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, commuting to Manhattan. Wow. And so we had a, like a wonderfully supportive childhood. Education was everything. My parents broke their backs to give us opportunities. I went to a a, a prep school nearby called Lawrenceville Prep. Mm. It was excellent place, academically inclined. Now it's sort of infamous as I think the most expensive high school in America. <laughs> Not super proud of that, but the education it offers is top tier. And so um, now here you are, you're kicking around New York, so to speak. Were, were you feeling pressure to make a living? Were your family on your case? Like, yes, what's going on, dude? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like, time yeah. to get, get your stuff together, son. Yeah. Uh, and so, but but it was, that was... Uh, my my instinct anyway was to figure out my my place and and to find a way to create value that was also satisfying intellectually. And and you were like probably what twenty five years old at that point. Exactly. So I'm twenty five. Were you were you optimistic? And, were you depressed? Were you anxious? How, how did you experience all that? That's a great question. A mix. I think I was yeah. I was extremely anxious. I was sort of coming, uh, felt very much on the periphery, right? This was also post 2001. Economy wasn't great in New York for those couple of years. Um, and there was this interesting dynamic of my, you know, my cohort of folks I'd graduated with. This this is before startups were really a big thing. And so people were either going into consultant banking, med school, law school, but- or taking jobs in big tech. But yeah, I would say you just came out of the dot com boom too, though. Yeah, yeah, that was Which late nineties. A bit of a wipe for people. Yeah. Maybe people were taking like web developer jobs, things like that. Um, and so what you started to see was like this interesting dispersion of like people that were on, people that were like, you know, fi- finishing their first two years of consulting and applying to business school, or folks that were graduating from law school and starting to practice. Mm-hmm. And you were starting to see this ramp of like, wow, they're they're kind of they're on something. It's it's accelerating for them. Yeah. And then I was still exploring, right? Yeah. And exploration is this sort of hodgepodge thing. Sometimes you can find ladders and sometimes you can really just be killing time. Yes. And so what I was trying to do was get to bedrock on whether art and the art world could be a thing, right? Was there a career here? Mm-hmm. 
Shopify, you've heard me talk about them. They are the commerce platform revolutionizing businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or you're IPO ready, whatever it is, Shopify is the tool you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. And you'll get you to your audience. Uh, it, it just does. It, it's The fact is that this is an efficiency that we should all be using. It's, it's a breakthrough. It takes you to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is truly a, glo- a global force, has every size of entrepreneur across 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support you every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Drew. It's all lowercase. Again, Shopify, it's H-O-P-I-F-Y, shopify.com slash D-R-E-W to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Drew. Hmm. So I was curating, I was like trying my hand at dealing art, working with some large galleries, trying to figure out that business. And then I was also, also started making art, had this kind of inkling of like, maybe I can pull this off. Hmm. And so I was really hungry to get feedback in all these areas. Um, and uh, yeah, that was fine. But what was really turning me on, Drew, hmm. was work I started to do in the fragrance and flavor area, sensory space. Weirdly applied and got a fellowship for some, with something called the Sense of Smell Institute, I don't think it exists anymore, mm. to, to do some writing on the difference between, um, how can I say it, aromatherapy mm. and aro- aromacology. Okay, aromacology was a, a term being advanced by the fragrance industry to, to sort of explain and express the, ex- the sensory experience as opposed to aromatherapy, which is sort of about dermal application of of essential oils, right? So I quickly got inducted into this world of fragrance and flavor players and realized there's a whole industry here. Let, let me, I want to stop you. The, um, you know, if you look up the Sense of Smell Institute and there is a category, you get shunted over to international flavor and fragrances. Yeah, interesting. I think- Which is at, interesting. At the, time, at the time it was a nonprofit, I think funded by a number of the different fragrance and flavor companies. Hmm. Yeah, this was also 2002, 2003. Um, so it got, it's probably got absorbed since then and gone through many lives. But yeah, um, yeah. so that was my entree into the fragrance and flavor industry, discovered it as a space, loved sensory experience because no one could write about it or figure out how to express it. There just was no language. And after coming out of the art world where it, it was at a time when it just felt like the critical voices were so loud and they were overmastering the work. Here I found this whole dimension of creation, of expression, of experience, and no one could talk about it because there was no vocab. And I love that. It was intractable to theory. Um, And plus, it was connected to a massive industry where there was a lot of creativity, but it was collaborative, right? There were uh, these these folks were trained. uh, They were almost savants, this apprenticeship style training. There were four or five really large companies doing it at global scale. Um, and I was like, I think I found my people. This is, this is incredible. Uh, you know, there are fewer call it expert perfumers or flavorists than NBA basketball players. Wow. Right. But their work is present in products that billions of people have made parts of their lives. 
right? Whether it's the smell of Tide or the taste of Diet Dr. Pepper or, you know, the Chanel fragrance that your your lover wears, like somebody designed these. And what it dawned on me was that we move through a, a sensory environment. It is designed and it is programmed and it is invisible, but we are constantly moving through it and it shapes all of our common experiences and, and very few people know or talk about it. Is it invisible for a reason? Uh, is something no, about the industry that it wants to be invisible. It doesn't want to get let you peek behind the curtain. I think for a for a uh, for a period of time, the so so the industry's gone through a couple of different phases, right? Like mm-hmm. in in the earlier days, and say the and and to tell this correctly, I probably have to go into a little bit of the history of the industry, oh right? But but what I was going to say was that for a period of time, the names of the perfumers were well known. Like Coty, Francois Coty was a perfumer who then became a brand, mm. right? And then after a time when uh, fragrances were being launched by brands, for, for instance, fashion brands or others, the creating authority was not the perfumer, right? It was the clothing designer. And so the perfumer was sort of like a ghostwriter, mm. right? So, you, so in a way, they were purposely shunted to the side. And then, and then when you're talking about consumer products... Um, you're right. Like 90% of the experience of a bottle of shampoo when you open it is the fragrance in my opinion, but Dove doesn't really want you to think about the fragrance. They want you to think about the, the foamy soapiness or the, the silkiness on the skin. There's other sensory elements too. And so um, for a variety of reasons, and also because I think the industries was at the time, like largely European based, um, just didn't sort of flew under the radar. Isn't, I, isn't IFF in South America or something? Did yeah. I, or, no, IFF no, based here in the U.S. U.S. But and, it's so, a major U.S. player. The other companies are European. Couple of questions. So, 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 taste had a, a similar history where it's like sort of ghostwriting background. Even though I've often thought to myself, man, how they arrive at deciding this is the taste. This is the one that, you know, a, a Cheeto, this is what a Cheeto is supposed to taste, taste like. Taste is different though. Taste is food science, right? And that, yeah. and that is coming out of the, the bend in t- toward processed foods. Towards toward yummy. Massively sc- scaled yeah. consumer products, mm. um, creating consistent consumer experiences. Well, and, you- and addic- oh. more and more addictive experiences too, right? Uh, addic- maybe not addiction, addiction's but- a heavy term. Addiction, yeah, a- maybe not consciously, but that you know, more yummy, more. It's a little know. bit of a loaded term, a- an experience you want to go back to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's my <laughs> heroin addict's day. <laughs> this is an experience I want to go back to, but but <laughs> but I, I want to dial back a little further. And you mentioned critical theory. I want to make people make sure people understand post-structuralism and critical theory and what what that meant at that time, because I think we're still living under the sway of that which is interesting to me. Like when you go to France, they laugh at our over-reliance at, you know, post-structural philosophers that uh, they gave up 75 years ago as irrelevant. Uh, what was, fair enough. what was yeah. critical theory? What, what would it, you know, was it all just subjectivity and political and that's critical theory or was there some deeper sort of critical theory that you can explain to us? You know, I think it's hard to say that it's sort of unified as a discourse. I mean, the, the, the 
authors that mattered then were, there were a couple of generations, right? So we were past the prime of say the eighties when a lot of the first post-structural texts were making their way into the U S in translation, right? So the Baudrillard, Derrida, Foucault, uh, et cetera. Um, and these were important, powerful thinkers. And then there was successive generations that took them on, you know, there was Deleuze and then there was sort of like the, the translating generation. And then, and so I think doing critical theory and, and maybe doing that style of quasi philosophy is interesting. What started to happen was you were getting just sort of this runoff watered down version where a lot of it was, was getting rendered into uh, you know, a way to write an art history paper or a way to interpret a painting through the lens of, you know, Derry, uh, Barth's concept of the punctum, right? And it's, right. it was just sort of like, right, a, a, like a third or fourth generation derivative approach to a certain kind of style. And I think, I think that probably the cultural moment we're in now is we're in like fifth generation interpretations of concepts of, of, um, politics and ideology and power and language that are, I think are very potent, but, um, yeah, somewhat de- detached from the the philosophical origin and certainly the social context well, in, and the pragmatic Paris, reality the pragmatic, right pragmatic at the reality, time yeah. when those when those ideas were getting generated and they were really really part of different intellectual factions mm-hmm. were intertwined with domestic politics right and and I think like you know part of my American grad school experience was like that that was being exported uh without context into different academic departments. And it, mm-hmm. it, was, it was just sort of this carnival, this grab bag of ideas mm-hmm. that people were using and sometimes to interesting effect, but sometimes to kind of predictive, not great effect, um, yeah. but certainly lacked originality. And, and further and further from anything pragmatic or real, that that's the part. Because when, when I read critical theory, the they reliance on the political and the subjective is so profound that objectivity becomes irrelevant or racist <laughs> frankly uh, maybe yeah i mean like there's great there are great writers on science right there's great philosophy around questions of objectivity i mean i still foucault is still my favorite philosopher Ugh. but i but i love foucault because at the here, but here's the interesting part of him is like at the end of his career he swore off maoism embraced Milton Friedman and was obsessed with the market, right? He was telling his students, go study libertarianism, go study the market, try to understand that. And and because that's an important dynamic and like, you know, Foucault was all about freeing humanity from the burden of having, having content. Like there is no should, there's no way to be that's better than another. Uh, he destroyed almost single-handedly destroyed the mental health care system in this country. His philosophy, and then the psychoanalysts that grabbed onto that, literally believed there was no such thing as a brain disease, and so that was that's why we have homeless. That's what caused it. Uh, that's interesting. That, that undid it undid 150 years of state health care and no plan for what to do with the patients that were just ejected from these hospitals. They yeah, well, prisons. Put this way, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think of it. Or really any, I wouldn't really think of any kind of academic philosophy as a good source, 
for policy. I, I, that I think I, that's what uh, I, so I, I, I would I wouldn't fault Foucault exclusively for that. I'm not sure there are many philosophers that if you translated their work directly into policy would yeah. find success. Locke, maybe, but even that. Um, so, so the other thing is now. This is how I want to kind of back into science here. So the the fragrance world, I don't know if people sort of are aware, but started essentially scraping whale vomit off the surface of the ocean as as one of its chemical sources. Ambergris is something. I mean, I, I I like to think of it as more involved with agricultural practices. You know, this was the you know, growing and. Uh, processing the natural, the botanical plants and raw materials in, think of like the South of France. So rose de May, jasmine, citrus peel essence, right? And these were pretty easy to process raw materials, all of, you know, natural agricultural origin. And you had, uh, you had kind of blending of these essences. I think first they were done as pomanders, you know, gloves. The, the world was pretty smelly. For most of human how, existence, how, how much was ambergris, which is the whale vomit, so to speak, sperm whale vomit? How, how much of that was? I thought that was one of the original chemical ingredients. No, yeah, it's it's an ingredient for sure. I think it's, yeah. it's eject. What is it? it? It's the rejectament of when they can't can't actually digest the beak of squid. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize it was yeah. specific to squid. Yeah. And so, and so my, my point being though, is that this is always, it's always been reliant on a very complicated chemistry, even though the chemistry initially was produced by nature, it was still a very complex chemistry that I believe that industry kind of has parsed out into the, the chemistry itself, right. Into the molecules. Yeah. So, so what, here's what I'd say is like modern perfumery was born when German chemistry companies, chemical companies, and Swiss chemi- chemical companies in the mid and late 19th century started partnering up with the natural products companies in the south of France who were growing, you know, the regional, doing regional agriculture, right? Because what, what modern chemistry allowed us to do is figure out what are the aroma compounds in, you know, in a rose or in jasmine and how can we chemically synthesize them because if you can chemically synthesize them we can make these smells available to millions of people right as opposed to tens of thousands of people right Right. because at that point fragrance and perfume was was an elite experience it was an elite product and it was limited in its production and scale This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's easy to get really caught up in everybody else's needs, and you yourself can get depleted, right? All that time giving. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting other people without depleting yourself, leaving yourself behind. Of course, I'm a big fan of therapy. I've been involved in clinical settings. I've been a patient in clinical setting. I've referred family, friends, patients to BetterHelp, and I've been very pleased with the professional services that they provide there. And no longer is stigma an excuse for you not to get therapy, not to take care of your mind the way you take care of your body. I mean, it's weird that we have stigma for that. It just is. But it's all online. Uh, And so if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. And I said it's entirely online, so stigma is no longer an excuse. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash D-R-E-W.
So chemistry comes along and, and, and makes it possible to start to think about, you know, national scale industry or global scale industry. And, and so this is you're you're in this business now. And what is your job at that point? I, I'm not in this business anymore. Oh, oh. no, no, no. By the no, time no. it got there, you were already out? There are a few other chapters of my biography for us to go into. Oh, okay. I, I want to have a chance. I want to have time. We have to do two pods. I want to have time <laughs> to talk about the science you're in right now, but give give me a give me the cliff list what they call them shark notes now. Okay, okay. I will give you the the five minute version, right? So I think we left off when with like 24, 25 year old Jason. You found your people. Trying to get his stuff together, finds the fragrance industry. Yeah. So did was some, that in New York? Did you find it in New York? Uh, in, in New York, yeah, wow. in New York. Find the fra- the the fine fragrance industry. At the time, though, I'd already enrolled myself in law school, right? Mm. So so taking kind of the uncreative safe route, but also said to myself, look, I, I know what I want to do in life. I want to do like big, hairy, audacious, creative things. But in order to actually get them done, I need hard skills. Mm. I need to be able to land them in the world, right? And so you can't just have visions and ideas. You need to actually execute in a world that's mostly about administrative process. Mm. So went to law school all the while knowing I wanted to make my way back to the fragrance and flavor industry. Hmm. Spent three great years at law school in Los Angeles, a city I had a huge crush on. Um, do do just fine in law school, enough to land a great M&A job back at a white shoe law firm in New York City. Start practicing right around the time of the financial crisis. Hmm. So I get a front row seat at the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. Oh, the, boy sale of Merrill Lynch to Bank of America in three, four day weekend, which I worked on. Um, the merger markets were like, go, go, go until they hit a wall. And suddenly it was just crickets. And I was sitting in my M&A you know, office. Actually, it was a pleasant time. You know, n- Normally you're getting crushed with you know, 18 hour days in these departments and had enough time to think and learn and started to pick up the phone and talk to my friends in the fragrance and flavor industry. And started sniffing out whether, no pun intended, whether there was an opportunity over there for me. Managed to convince a couple of friends to hire me into a non-legal role. So I jumped to Swiss company called Givadarm, largest in the world, fragrance and fragrance, fla- sorry, fragrance and flavor. Um, and I find myself in a marketing and sales role. Hmm. And on the left of me are the large consumer brands, Estee Lauder, uh, P&G, L'Oreal, and on the right of me are the perfumers and the flavors, right? The creatives. And, and my job is to translate, you know, what does Tom Ford want to do next in building the private blend line into, you know, sensorially, what is, what is that? How can we make that, how can we make that happen? Or, you know, Axe is going to launch, you know, three new variations to target, uh, you know, XYZ consumer, sensorily what what's going to compel that teenage kid to buy this stuff right and so i went from this world of reams and reams and stacks of paper reviewing documents all day in law to a world where nothing matters but <laughs> the smell at the end of this blotter <laughs> and that's the only piece of paper in the room wow and i loved it it was like i had fallen down into it was it was like willy wonka <laughs> But everyone wore couture and was hot or, <laughs> you know, just an Alice in Wonderland type. Still in New York. Still in New York. Yeah. yeah New York, Paris, the company was headquartered in Geneva. Um, 
spent five years doing that, and then jumped into biotech. And the reason I got into biotech was because part of my mandate at Jividon was starting to think about uh, growth of the category. And if you know anything about these industries or fragrance flavor, what you realize is it, it is a massive supply chain and logistics business, right? Sourcing thousands upon thousands of ingredients and raw materials from either plant extraction, right? You're picking and pulling a plant essence out of something. And a lot of times these are grown in the most politically unstable tropical belt regions, or you're synthesizing them chemically and you're subject to the price shocks in the petrochemical supply chain, mm. right? And so what, what these companies are doing is sourcing all this stuff. They're doing some, a little bit of creativity on top and delivering that to customers. Start talking to a, a couple of companies that are out here knocking on doors. They are, they are using biotechnology out here. Me in New York, really. This was New York. New York. They are um, using biotechnology. They're using yeast to ferment the aroma chemicals that we would otherwise be getting from plant extraction or from petrochemistry. And they are able to do this because they have figured out what genes in the rose or in the patchouli are responsible for the aroma chemicals. And they have recoded those genes into an ordinary yeast cell, right? And, and they've now made like a cellular factory for producing the compounds that we would need to use in, in my industry. You, you right? use the word fermentation or ferment. Tell me uh -huh. why that's fermentation. So, so this is the key concept, right? If you take a brewer's yeast and you pour in the genes to produce, um, you know, a chemical that has an odor from a rose, right? You can just let that yeast grow up in a tank, feed it sugar, keep it warm. This is essentially, I just described the process of brewing beer. Yeah, right? It goes about its metabolic business, but one of the things it now does is produce the chemical you programmed it to make. So right? are you so, I mean, giving it multiple ingredients to do that, uh, to pull from the environment? or how, how Usually you're, you're, using like a, you're doing like a single molecule. You know, you're producing a single molecule. Out of sugar? Yeah. Feed it wow. sugar. Yeast eats sugar or, or any other carbon source. Wow. Does all the complex cellular chemistry that normally happens, but now it's running one piece of code that you uniquely put in there. That yeah. piece of code is, uh, you know, make XYZ aroma chemical. And it's now doing that in copious amounts, right? So you can, you can harvest that out and you now have an on-demand sustainable way to make a, a specific molecule to spec as opposed to relying on the complexity of the agricultural supply chain all the inputs that go into that, uh, the, you know, the fertilizer, the water, the energy for harvesting and extracting and shipping. Now we can do that stuff on demand. Just out of curiosity, how did they decide which one, which molecule they were going to grow? It was just one of the more in-demand molecules or one of the more exotic ones, or how did it's, they decide? So that's, the, that's an amazing question. It's, it's a variety of factors, right? It's like, first of all, which ones are easy to get a microbe to produce? Yeah. Right. Um, at a at a cost effective scale, some molecules are harder than others. Some take longer. Um, and then, what does the industry need and want? Right? What what of the molecules I just described need to be produced at a certain volume volume that that fermentation can meet? Right. And so, there are opportunities to make molecules we know and love. 
there are opportunities to make new, you know, never before not accessible molecules or things that exist in only in tiny quantities in a plant, right? That you'd have to grow thousands and thousands yes. and thousands of acres to get to. Right. That's not efficient, but that biology can make, fermentation can make uh, quite easily, right? I so wonder if your, if your marketing and creative head help them select that, like, oh, Tom Ford's going to love this and he'll need a lot. And we do, we haven't yeah. had that before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing in these, in the frames of flavor departments and groups, like there was a lot of bioprospecting already, right? There were programs of, uh, you know, we'd send people into the jungle canopy in, in Costa Rica and blimps to forage for, for rare flowers, right? And you could headspace these plants, I mean, englobe them in glass, sample the air, take it back to the lab, run it through a GC and understand what molecules these these flowers have been expressing. And then you could reconstitute that. Yeah, um, just so the gas chromatographs, what he's talking about. Exactly. GC. And so, so, here, so, so here you are now in chemistry. <laughs> You're in, not yeah, yeah. I, but remember, we started me. talking about French art history, yeah, right? I know. Now, that's what I love about, about your chemistry. That's what I love about your story. And I think young people would be inspired by it but you're you're now you're talking about grass gas chromatography and you're you're and now you i don't even know what we call it anymore we used to call it molecular biology you yeah. had to get up to speed with what do we even call it now biotech molecular biology synthetic biology yeah, yeah. And, and you know how genes work essentially which exactly. is no no small matter and people you know departments dedicated to that how long did that take for you how did you do that it was all ojt on the, on the job. Job training, yeah, it was, and it was, it was just like a window had opened up where companies like Ginkgo BioWorks, which IPO'd in 2021, were just starting out. Right, they had scaled their technology platform. They had essentially, this was 2014-15. Right, what was happening in biotech was that um, automation machine learning and AI were merging with the field of what you call molecular biology, mm -hmm. right? The costs of reading genomes, re reading the DNA of a plant, for instance, or a microbe was dropping, you know, dropped a million fold. Dr yeah. Dramatically, like ridiculous. The DNA of a human, Yeah. Uh, the cost of printing DNA, right? So the ATCs and Gs, these are actually chemicals. They can actually be printed the way that your, you know, your printer works with, uh, you know, CMYK uh, inks and dyes. And so that cost is going down, right? So you have this million fold decrease in the raw materials to work with slash design biology. Um, and suddenly it, it's opening itself up as, a, as essentially programmable, right? If you can read the gene and you can write a gene, you can use a cell as your compiler. You can read and write DNA, use the cell to then produce a variety of different compounds from small molecules to proteins that you've, you've programmed it to do. So right? you joined that team and was that Ginkgo or is that ferment? What was that? That was Ginkgo. That Ginkgo. was Ginkgo. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, so biology as this new manufacturing technology was what it was all about. Right. Cause what I just described to you was like something, you know, think of something with the, the sophistication of chemistry, but the scalability is much easier. Oh yeah, it right. was. Where, where were the factories, so called the, the yeast factories? Were they the in factories or fermenters? They're fermentation. Or were they big tanks in Brooklyn or something? Or yeah, they they tend to be big tanks around uh, a place where there's lots of biomass, meaning lots of sugar or, nah. or 
like a, a feedstock, a carbon feedstock. So Brazil, uh, the Midwest, companies like Cargill and ADM, companies like Novozymes in Europe, like we, we are surrounded by a world of biomanufacturing, fermentation. We've been this so for 30, 40 years. The technology is going through an acceleration point now because of what I, I'm telling you about. But, you know, we've been making things like using bacteria and fermentation for a while from human insulin yeah. to, you know, if you washed your clothes this morning, you probably used a detergent powered by a cold water enzyme. Mm-hmm. Enzymes are small proteins that are fermented. Um, amino acids, which make their way into everything from animal feed to, uh, you know, to, to nutrition supplements. Uh, and supplements. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and- citric acid, et cetera. And are you doing that all with yeast or just a variety of different uh, so, organisms? So there are a couple different organisms. There's, th- th- this is rapidly expanding, but mm-hmm. you know, it's yeast, E. coli, um, bacillus, and others that are like sort of well understood where there are toolkits for working on their, their genomes. But what companies like Ginkgo and others were able to do is, is in- r- dramatically increase the range of, uh, call it chassis, or microbes that one can work with. And let, and when we first spoke, you were excited by big data and how big data was going to impact all this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's big data, it's machine learning, it's AI, it's, 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 it's being able to produce, uh, it's being able to run these experiments at very large scale. What, what do you mean experiment? Because I, I didn't, I'm not sure I quite got my head around. This is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. You, you were very excited about this and I didn't quite get a clear, I didn't get my head around it properly. So, so how, because it, it feels like, you know, you've got the manufacturing down, you have the products down, you have the, the commercial, you know, uh, the supply chain down, you got everything sort of squared. Where is it we need the big data? What, what is the next thing that data can solve? I think where it's a, in, it's in a couple things, right? It's in order. To, so we're talking about genetic engineering. Yes. I just want the audience to understand. We're not that. talking about CRISPR. We're talking about, well, do you use CRISPR to get the stuff in there? Absolutely. You, right? Using you're, CRISPR. You're, you're not, you're knocking genes out. You're yeah. inserting genes. CRISPR is one of several different editing yeah. tools. Yeah. So um, you're, you're changing the genetic function of these right. primitive organisms. And if I remember right in the E. coli, it was usually plasmids, right? Didn't you insert plasmids into the, you didn't actually use the genome. You, you use plasmid transfer, no? Remember yeah. Right. Right. Well, depending on the species of, of bacteria or, or yeah. fungus you're using. Um, okay. And in some cases, you know, I mean, we haven't really discussed pharma and its approach, but it's using mammalian cells for producing, you know, much more complex proteins and medicines, but right. Um, so in order to understand what kind of genome level change you want to make, um, you need to understand a lot about the you know gene expression, gene sequence, et cetera. Not all of this stuff is predictable, right? So you need to run large experiments where you're changing and making a variety of different changes. Okay. Right? And That's so funny. figuring out, and, and a lot of these are maybe multi-gene uh you know, multi-gene pathways or multi-enzyme pathways, you're just doing a lot across different parts of the genome. And so you run up against constraints, right? It's like, how many combinations can I actually do, right? Combinations of what, of insertions? Yep. Yeah. 
how many can I do? And how much how much prediction can I do, right? Can I can I take data from the last several experiments I ran and use that to, to, to be, create a better guide for the next set of experiments I want to run? Globally, humans are facing massive problems that are widely ignored by governments and the media. Like personal space invaders. I had it with these couples that sit on the same side of the booth. Yak mouths. Stupid stick figure bumper stickers. Almond milk. You cannot milk an almond. Hi, I'm Jennifer. And I'm Angie. We call her Pumps, and we're the hosts of I've Had It. Pumps, tell the listener where they can find us. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it. See you next Tuesday. No, so uh, I, I want this is where I want to drill in. So the experiments are: what do I get when I insert this gene sequence, right? Yep. And and so is is the experiment because the experiment you, at the level we're talking is not can the organism do this? It must be what's the purity of what's being produced or something, or what 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 is it you're trying to get at with that so-called experiment? I think you're you're trying to get to let's say the ingredient of interest, right? You're trying to get expression level up you're trying to get carbon flux you know to that metabolic pathway you're trying to also maybe reduce the amount of of byproducts or co-products right that, that's what i'm imagining so maybe you're right. also trying to get the cell to secrete the molecule as opposed to keep it bound up within the cell so i'm right? still trying to get i'm trying to understand how the leap to big data would help with all that well so if you're doing all of these maneuvers in tandem in yeah. an experiment, right? And you're yeah. trying to then back correlate, right? To which which um which modification led to what outcome. Yeah. And you're doing this uh you're doing tens of thousands of variants per experiment, right? You're throwing off terabytes of data. What, also, why are you doing so many why so many variants? Well, because sometimes you just don't know what's going to work, right? Like we don't really have a predicted fully mapped roadmap of biology. It is still, it's still very much uh, empirically driven. And do you do 10,000? Right? Yes, I'm, I get it. And do you 10,000 10, all at once? Like in one organism? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. so the facilities that are getting built now are massive scale, right? So you can do what they call, you know, multiplexed types of experiments where you're using, you know, thousands of different variants. You're putting them into organisms. You're putting those organisms under different growth conditions. And then you're seeing what's optimizable. And each of these experiments are throwing off terabytes of data. And you're going to gather that data and you're going to use it to you know, do statistical analysis and back correlate into what was working and what didn't work. And then so the you big to- data is, is gathering that data and doing something meaningful with it. Yeah. It's, it's using gathering. it in a, in a, in a, in a accurate way, meaningful yeah. way. And that that's one, but that, and that's just one way that, your concept of big data touches on synthetic models, right? There's a whole other aspect that's predictive, like what, you know, protein folding, what would the interactions of, uh, you know, if we were to make this change to uh, the genome and then that were to, you know, create uh, a type of protein or an enzyme, how would those things interact? What would the electrical charges between base pairs mean for, for protein folding, Protein folding means shape. Shape right. 
it's determinative in many cases of of function. Yes. So so could we get to a point where without having to do the experiment, we'd be able to predict the function of a certain protein? So the function or the folding or both? I guess both. So yeah. so so the but you know folding is a extreme I was very interested in that in college because it it's such a real world representation of the laws of thermodynamics you you are at once and of course the chemistry you know the, you already mentioned the the you know the the charges and how the charges affect each other you know but but it's also energetics you know what is the lowest energy state that folded molecule can hit to and not only are you going towards low energy, you also have entropy involved in ways that we, we never really could figure out. So my guess is that there's always going to be a need for experimentation, even though you can get close. Completely agree with you. What's yeah, that? I completely agree, right? And I think yeah. that anyone who's trying to model all this in silico still needs tons of data yeah. to train yeah. their models, right? And where does yeah. that data come from? Yeah, still they, to do, you know, 15 years worth of experiments. They can project and they can probably predict what are the more likely things and stuff, but you can't do it completely cold, I don't think. It's biology is too complicated now. And maybe big data one day or AI will sort of have so much information it will be able to do some of that stuff. You know, it, it needs oh, like an infinity yeah. amount of information, but we're kind of, we're rapidly going that direction. Yeah, I mean, the, the I think the field sort of frames this debate as like, to what extent do you want to use rational design, right? Sit down and Drew and Jason think hard about what kind of genome level changes we want to make. Um, or do we want to be unbiased and, you know, make changes that are really orthogonal, very far away from the parts of the genome that we, we think matter, um, but and often you're surprised because it's those orthogonal kind of low probability changes that yield the best results. But in a world where you have constraints, right? You can't run every single experiment. Right. How do you how do you come to some middle ground, right? How do you use both rationality and a lot of times that's the result of experimental data analysis to could put some guardrails around your unbiased experimental approach. What what do you say to people that get frightened by biotech and think you know, they're putting genes in these organisms and what does that mean? Oh, uh, what, what do you say to people that are worried about somehow the ecosystem being uh, altered by us monkeying with um, genetics? I well, first I listen, I listen because I think it's um, it's important part of the technology. To acknowledge the social practice around it and the fact that technology is embedded in culture, it doesn't live separate and apart from it. Um, and in order to have the social license to work with biology, which is the most, I'd say, the most advanced technology on the planet, mm -hmm. right? Um, we do have to grapple with what it means to do do this work responsibly. Right? We saw that the world was shut down because of out-of-control biology. Mm -hmm. That's COVID. Mm -hmm. But the world was also brought back because of our ability to use biotechnology, the technologies we're discussing, specifically to create vaccines and to create supply chains to make those vaccines. mRNA didn't have a supply chain behind it. It needed to come arise overnight. We were able to do that through the exact same technology. So what what we do is we listen to people 
We try to understand their concerns. We acknowledge the footfalls that the technology has made being rolled out, right? A lot of times people talk about um, ag, ag tech, right? And Monsanto and Roundup Ready Crops and the maybe the, the, the way the technologies led to uh, monoculture in growing or change agricultural practices. So, you know, it's also the case that the green revolution, right. Would fed the world. Right. But there are, there are downsides that we need to, to acknowledge and talk about. Um, and so long winded way of saying is that we just acknowledge these fears point to the fact that we've got 40 years of biomanufacturing and biotechnology surrounding us, right? If we went to a grocery store and hung a light bulb or put a spotlight over every product in that store touched by biomanufacturing, you'd have half of the store lit up. Oh, for sure. Right? And so what people often don't realize is that we are already surrounded by meaningful, beneficial examples of what this technology can do. Um, but as we advance forward, we need to acknowledge risks and sort of not sidestep them as a technology community. And so, yeah, so what, what, what so just to, to land the point, like what you're seeing in the industry is as more and more of, as, as biology takes on more of a role for producing meaningful medicines, for producing the goods and services or goods and products we're used to. What you're also seeing is companies like Ginkgo who have spun up biosecurity, biosurveillance, and ways of of monitoring uh, you know, the downside or out of control type scenarios and figuring out ways to mitigate them. And and I, you know, there are need to be sort of international guardrails too. I mean, I I know in China we have CRISPR twins, and no one expected anybody to do that, and uh, right. that was a major concern, and still remains a concern that that sort of rogue actors might do strange things that we don't anticipate. And how how do we? People are thinking very hard about how to how to limit some of that and and police it a bit. And then, so as we sort of head towards the exit here, what what excites you now? What do you want people to know going forward? Gosh, what excites me is. Uh, that a lay person like myself can find their way into this industry. Art and, historian. Yeah. Tell me about your, your, your story. It's like you come from liberal arts guy. Someone makes, makes good in think about all these people that are told the liberal arts educated, worthless. Oh my God, what are you going to do with that? Well, here you are. Exactly. Exactly. I think if nothing else, I've been able to figure out how to, how to land some of this in people's brains and, and help them understand why it's meaningful. It's going to change the world. Um, here's what I'm excited about, Drew, is that I have started a company creation studio, right? That builds product companies that use the technology that I just described to you. And we're at a day and age where you don't need to be a microbiologist or a metabolic engineer to be able to, to work with biology. And that's sort of similar to, I guess, the moment and I'll, I'll I'll compare it to the rise of the internet, right? When sort of HTML was invented, you didn't need to know basic programming in order to build a website or build an online store, right? And that's sort of where we are now, this level of abstraction where people from different end markets, beauty, food ingredients, waste remediation, 
animal health, who know those markets really well, can say to themselves, wait a minute, I see where, where there's an unmet need in my space. I wonder if biomanufacturing and synthetic biology can solve it. Right? And those people can come find me at ferment.co and we can start to build companies together. Um, but that you don't necessarily need to have a background in the field to do something meaningful in it. It's almost like um, the screen interface. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's not quite the computer, but it's like the interface with the computer. Like you can the, use the, it. Yeah, the, exactly. The way the way it's best described is, you know, there are companies again like Ginkgo that I'm sitting on top and you know, that we build on top of. They're platforms. They're like AWS, right? You can build on the cloud. Yeah, yeah. And, that's the that's simply the analogy in biotech now. You can build on the platforms, and instead you can focus your energy on products, not the basic science. Um, and that is enabling because you can do very differentiated, unique products. So on the website, your the opening page has this aphorism: "The future won't be mined, extracted, wired, or launched; it will be grown." Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting. I'm looking. This is a hell of a page. Permit.co. Take a look. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It's wild. Oh, it's like it's like you want to be a part of it. Just looking. Yeah, at the- look. I think. I mean, I, I think. Hopefully, what's come through is the next hundred years. In my mind, will no doubt technologically be, be defined by biology and AI, and those two things will converge quite soon. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I continue to be fascinated by you, your story, and your current endeavors. Uh, so I hope you'll stay in touch and do some. Let's go. I, I could just listen to your thinking and, and planning on this all day long. So uh, well, I hope you will spend some time with me down the road. I, I'd love to, and I think we put a pin in um, in talking about Ayana and talking with Frank Jacks, the CEO of Ayana, which is a one of the companies we've spun off that uses plant cells to ferment bioactive molecules that make their way into nutrition and, and longevity. Is, is he, is he, yeah, maybe you can't talk about it. I'm, I'm guessing he has some really interesting ideas about what to, what to go. Really interesting ideas and really interesting products. Yeah. Can you talk about them yet? For sure. Yeah. They've launched a couple already. Tell me what they got. Yeah. So they, they have a lemon balm and they have an echinacea, but what's unique about these products is that they were not grown in the ground. Hmm. This is echinacea that was grown in suspension culture, right? So most people don't realize this. I certainly didn't. You can take plant cells and rather than grow a plant, you can uh, culture them up, right? You can ferment them and they grow in, in clumps and clusters and you can induce those cells to produce exactly the bio the bioactive molecules you'd otherwise be growing the plant and extracting from it to get, right? But you can also use the 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 tools of modern day biotech to select the plant cells that are elite and are producing just the molecules and compounds you think are are the active ingredients right so you now get a very efficient way to get to let's say the heart healthy flavanol or cocoa you know the the polyphenol that's, that's exactly where my brain went to antioxidants and things like that there's got to be really powerful then back to the nicotinamide riboside which i know who's a part of that, that there would be there's something i bet to be just discovered right there 100 percent, right yeah. so if you think that we're, we're in a world where 
you know, more people are dying of nu- nutrition deficit than smoking these days. Mm. Um, and what you need to inject, we've certainly figured out how to create calories in our food system cheaply, but we haven't figured out nutrient density. Mm. This is a way to spike back in a lot of the nutritious components of food that are too expensive to grow at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you, we could have that conversation. I think it's also a great chance to talk a little m- more about how data and computation have made this possible, right? Because the complexity of plant biochemistry is something that we've only recently gotten our heads around. Well, that's something you and I talked about was, you know, I've, I've known for some time that the field of botany was populated by extremely brilliant scientists. And I, I never felt like I was hearing from it. You know what I mean? I, I felt like agriculture got it. Uh, but I felt like there was a lot more to be uh, mined there. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's it's the it's the rise of sequencing technology. It's the rise of transcriptomics, which is a fancy word of saying, you know, when, when the you know, messenger RNA of a plant makes its way into the cell, the cell starts to create a bunch of different molecules. What part of the gene was responsible for that? How do we, you know, how do we do a better job of understanding in the wonderful wide world of bioactive molecules that plants make what genetically drove that what conditions drove that what part of the plant right because plant cells aren't all uniform well i'm also guessing you have to get into the whole regulatory system too how the genes are regulated absolutely yeah which is that that tends to be some of the most complicated aspects of the biology right yeah. And again, a big, another big data question. Yeah. Right? Capturing yeah. all that. And so, and then also the rise of single cell omics, right? So being able to look at single cells, mm. right. And, and that's sort of a tools and hardware thing that's recently become pop, pop um, more possible. Mm. Right. And so if you are able to run plant cells through selection criteria and tools that let you grab cells that a, you can understand the transcriptome of what that plant cell is doing really well, but you also can confirm that it's producing the, the bioactive molecules you want at high copious amounts. You can grab that cell, use that as the basis for the callus you'll grow up, right? The cluster of cells you'll grow up, and, and suddenly you have a, a way to get to all the wonderful things that plants do. Without Remember, Plants are, are chemically without, so sophisticated, right? Yeah, without soil, without uh, watering. It's just, a plant has had to do so much through chemistry, yeah, right? Because yeah, it doesn't yeah. have arms and legs. It yeah. can't evade predators. It needs to communicate with soil. It needs to communicate with its environment. It does all of this thing through chemistry. It's chem- yeah. it, The chemistry is fantastically complex. Yeah. Um, but we're finally in a day and age where we, we can we can, again, start to understand it better and design with it. Are you still in the fragrance business too? Well, um, I dabble, I play with it. We One of the businesses that we founded um, when I was at Ginkgo is called Arkea. We also founded that company with Chanel and with uh, Gates' family office and others. They are launching a product in a couple of months. It's a scent of an extinct flower. Wow, interesting. Right. So we were able to, to get access to extinct plants through the Harvard Herbarium. Brilliant. 
identify the genes within the plants that produced certain aroma chemicals, port those genes into yeast, you know, confirm what molecules were being produced, and then take that data and work with perfumers, you know, to create something that would be sort of a, a perfumistic expression or interpretation of what that what that extinct plant smelled like. Wow. So we're going to be uh, smelling what dinosaurs smelled one day. <laughs> Maybe. These, these plants aren't more than 150, 200 years old. I'm just saying. That's These where it goes. I mean, yeah, it, it's, following, it, following it back, if you can find the remnants, I mean, who knows? And that's big data again. Maybe they could piece it together in certain ways. Well, listen, yeah. we got to kind of wrap this thing up. I could talk to you all day, but I, I appreciate you sharing your story. I hope it's inspirational to people that either have kids or no children, you know, young people that are struggling because COVID put a lot of people into weightless orbit, you know, and they're, they're trying to find their way back. Absolutely. And your story is well, very, very interesting for the, for those folks. Thanks. Thanks for taking an interest and in giving me a chance to share. Oh my God. And so you want people to go to ferment.co anywhere else? Ferment.co is it. That's where we build businesses and um, think about markets and product opportunities for synthetic biology. If you're curious, drop are you me. hiring? Are you growing fast enough that there's all kinds of hiring going on? We're we're hiring, we're growing, we're building more companies, we're getting more people involved. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. And uh, hopefully I'll talk to you soon and we'll talk about the, uh, is it Jack, right? Is that his name? Frank, Jax, Iana, Bio, and uh, Plant Cell Cultivation. We'll do it. All right, my friend, talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you. All right, Chase, well done. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 